You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. I, uh, I started in uh, advertising in the um, sort of in the traditional advertising business, um, image stuff. And um, I was told, by the way, when I started in the advertising business, uh, it, it, the, that if you want to keep an account, uh, all you need, uh, your ideal account, is a, uh, is, is, is a medium-sized uh, company where, where the CEO signs the checks. Uh, it's a dog food company. And the CEO's wife uh, owns and loves a bunch of fluffy little poodles. Because then all you got to do is put fluffy little poodles in all the ads and you'll keep the account for somewhere between nine and 18 months um, because it, first of all, it'll take them that long to figure out that what you're doing isn't working. And then there'll be a grace period after they figure it out where they won't be able to fire you because the spouse loves the dogs and all the ads. And uh, unfortunately, that's actually pretty good advice about traditional advertising. Um, And so very quickly, uh, I began my evolution um, I thought about it a little bit. I went back and looked. I, um, I, I wrote my first uh, full-page uh, direct response ad uh, for a trade journal in the tennis industry in uh, 1974. And um, this was a company that uh, built air-supported uh, domes that go over tennis courts and other sites in um, parts of the country where there was bad weather. Um, This particular company, uh, unbeknownst to me until some level of involvement, had a minor technological flaw with their particular product. Um, The the vinyl uh, dissolved (laughs) and and the buildings collapsed. Um, I still uh, shudder every time I go to the state of Texas um, I don't know if you know it, but Tyler, Texas, uh, is the uh, is the Black Rose capital of the world, and uh, there's a farm down there that had their entire crop wiped out one that particular year when this building that this company had erected dissolved and crashed down onto and flattened all of the roses. There's also a tennis court in Akron, Ohio where the thing came loose on the one side of the anchoring and the wind came up under it and like a big sail it came up in the air and crashed down on the other side on the house next to the tennis courts and flattened the house. Uh, minor technological flaw, but, but setting, aside, setting aside the product flaws, uh, we ran this full page, this full page ad in uh, whatever the tennis industry journal is, I don't remember the name of it anymore, and um, it, was, it was the only ad with no pictures. Um, this will all sound familiar to you, but uh, it is the only ad with no pictures. Um, it, the, it, neither the client nor at the time we were very sophisticated or had much money, so the, the ad was done on a typewriter. Um, so it looked like, there was no problem making it look like typewriter type. Uh, <laughs> which seems to be a major difficulty these, for a lot of people these days, but uh, we, we had no trouble at that time because we did it on the typewriter and um, blew the headline up on the copier, you know, and stitched it together and sent it off to the magazine. And, uh, of course, we started from them refusing to run it. 
because it didn't have pictures and you know all of that. But ultimately, this ad ran, and it's been a long time, obviously. But as I recall, it produced something like 800, 900 leads, and uh, one of which was um, Kevin's Wilson at the Holiday Inns Corporation, who subsequently spent almost a million dollars with this company. Um, so it was a pretty profitable ad, and. Um, it, it, it began, you know, to sink in that this was a more productive approach than, uh, than pretty pictures of buildings and logos and everything else that had been done. Um, and I began to do more and more of it and less and less of the, of the quote, quote, normal stuff. Um, if you look around a room um, at each other, uh, you see, uh, you see testament to the power of words on paper, because uh, that's why you're all here, and um, it uh, it it demonstrates that uh, you can sell just about anything, um, and I believe you can sell just about anything with words on paper. So this is a process I've been working at my entire life, and I'm going to try uh, and download uh, to you over the next two days um, what I know. Um, with this uh, caveat. Uh, when I told you I was going to teach you everything, I lied. Because um, uh, I don't know that I can. Uh, you know, you reach in anything that you do, in whatever business you're in, probably this is true for you in the technical aspects of what it is that you do. You, um, you reach a point where you do some things without knowing why you do them, and trying to analyze backwards is, um, is sometimes difficult. There's, a, um, there's an age-old thing about the going, going to interview the 100-year-old man, and he's got a floor-length beard, and the interviewer asks him, do you sleep with the beard inside the covers or outside the covers, and the guy never slept again. And, you know, there, there is some of that. Um, uh, the other caveat is, uh, which I think actually you all want, is mostly my primary objective in the time we have together is to, is to teach you how to cheat, uh, how to shortcut this process. Um, because I find that, and I know many, I know, I don't know, maybe a third of you in the room, um, many of you are already pretty good at this but painfully slow. Uh, and I have people tell me that they have 50 hours, 100 hours, a decade, <laughs> um, you know, in, in, invested in getting one sales letter down on paper. And, um, and, and how painful, somebody said writing's easy, you just sit down at the typewriter and slit your wrist. Uh, for, for some of you, that probably is your experience. Um, I would say my, my average on a, say, a, a direct mail package, my average time investment is down to under half a day. Uh, I'm not sure that it is smart of me to publicly confess that. But, um, but, but, but I'll tell you that that's true. And uh, there's a number of reasons for that, some of which can be transferred to you and some of which cannot, but most of which can. And so one of the objectives I have is to uh, not only improve 
your skill and, and the outcome of what it is that you do, but to hasten the process for you so it is uh, not only uh, easier, but a whole heck of a lot faster. Uh, and so as we go along, I'm going to be showing you little shortcuts and little ways to cheat. And um, late today, I'm going to give you the one big uh, 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 cheating uh, truth that uh, most copywriters would never teach you. Um, uh, some quick housekeeping stuff. Um, uh, we're dispensing with uh, going around the room. Oh, good. We're dispensing with uh, going around the room and having everybody uh, introduce themselves because otherwise, <laughs> you know, we'd be starting tomorrow. Um, well, I figured it out, yet it's hopeless. Um, but, uh, but I will tell you, there's, there's a whole lot of uh, smart folks here in this room, uh, some of whose names maybe the others of you know uh, uh, from reading the newsletter and so forth, uh, but it, it's real smart to spend your time uh, when we're not in the room working, uh, networking with each other, not hiding out or going to play golf or going to shop or whatever else you might try and do because there's a lot here to be learned from uh, each other and I would encourage you to do so. The, um, the, note, the notices on the first page of your book, if you will flip open to that, um, are uh, important. And so if you haven't read them, uh, sometime real soon it would be a uh, good idea to do so. Uh, on your next page, you have an agenda, which is relatively close to correct. Um, by the way, how many, found, how many found the first big error in the manual? Look at the, a few hands. Good. Yeah, it's, if you look at your cover, it's, uh, it's the seminar is taking place next year. Um, which you've got to admit is a pretty damn good trick, huh? Um, Either that or it's an indication of how long we're going to be here to get through all, all this stuff. Um, here's what's going to happen. The first part of today, we're, uh, first part of the time we have together today, we're going to get through the, the basic teaching stuff. And um, some of that uh, will be a, uh, an essential but uh, I hope fast review of the basics because it's tough to teach advanced stuff without making sure everybody's okay on the basics, they try and commingle, but we're going to kind of zap through that stuff as best we can. The second part of today, there's a whole bunch of exhibits back in the second hunk of this manual, and um, uh, we're going to go through those exhibits, and uh, I have them all on slides, and um, yeah, you, yeah, you can just bring it up. We're not, these guys are worried about turning out a good video product, but I'm not. <laughs> so. Um, uh, the, first, the first part of your manual, by the way, the pages have no numbers. They match the slides. I'm going to go through in order. You're not going to need page numbers. All of the exhibits are uh, alpha numbered, A through Z, double A through double Z, triple A through triple Z, et cetera. So when we try and find the exhibits, uh, understand that that's uh, the way they are. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to uh, have a, what do you need? Oh, uh, a uh, panel. Oh, I know why. You are, you're very quality conscious, aren't you? You didn't want to record the ice, um, which um, tells you guys, please don't, in the front row, please don't make any, like, bodily function noises, because <laughs> this microphone's live, and I don't want to spend any money on editing. Uh, tonight, uh, uh, tonight um, panel discussion. 
we have, uh, e I'm not, either seven or eight um, really interesting folks uh, who have bought some stuff to show, brought some stuff to show and tell, um, who are real smart practitioners, the kind of things we we're talking about. Uh, we're going to give you a manual tonight uh, that will be uh, tomorrow's uh, uh, ex exhibit. So later you'll get this gold manual. And uh, after we finish tonight at 9.30 or 10 o'clock, uh, you'll have homework assignments. Isn't that exciting? Um, uh, so you know, I did not use everybody's stuff. A bunch, of, a whole lot of you sent a lot of stuff. And uh, again, we only got two days. Uh, so I, I, hemp, I, I, I picked. And um, what you'll find in the exhibit manual, for example, is in some cases maybe it was a 16-page sales letter, and all, all you've got there is page 2, 4, 7, 8, and 10, just the pages that we're going to talk about. Um, and in some cases where there's three or four of you in the same business, uh, I, I only took one or two that either had the best stuff, and I mercifully left out the person with the really crappy stuff. Um, normally, I would, you know, use you and terribly embarrass you if I had the luxury of time, but I picked the best stuff uh, or the stuff that we could uh, learn the most stuff from. Um, you will next find in your book, and don't tear it out because there's loose sheets somewhere. I guess Carla probably has them out at the table. Uh, we told you ahead of time, obviously, we were taping and uh, that, you could, uh, that you could have tapes of the seminar. Uh, something less than 200 bucks, roughly approximating cost. Um, and as you see, we are taping. And uh, so uh, if you want complete tapes of this deal, there, you've got three choices here, audio only, uh, audio plus the video. And uh, the way we are selling this to non-attendees, uh, I think our 600 and some odd dollar uh, package is the audio plus the video plus a giant box of bonuses. I'm not going to take the time to, to describe in onesie-twosie detail to you, but uh, uh, the uh, roll letters who are here somewhere, raise your hand, there they are. Uh, not too long ago, I don't know, last month or so, I spoke at their uh, convention. Uh, what was it, your, how many years? Yeah. Your 10th year anniversary um, uh, hodgepodge uh, where everybody paid a lot of money to come to their anniversary party and um, all devoted to mail order and direct marketing and uh, we have a mountain of videos and audios and manuals from that convention my presentations plus others and um, uh, we're using that as a bonus in the mailing to the non-attendees and so if you want that that's your third option and uh, please do turn that form in uh, if you want this stuff uh, today because we are only producing enough units to satisfy you plus the inner circle members who ordered otherwise. Uh, let's see what else do we need to know. Um, you'll be charged on that when we ship, uh, probably late November, early December. Um, questions? Uh, I'm happy to take them in fact, I would like to take them as we go, um, and so um, uh, do not, uh, once we get going, do not sit here uh, quietly. Um, please feel free to participate. Um, those of you that are way in the back, I'll probably just restate your question. Those of you that are towards the front, we do have a live mic up here, and um, I'll drag somebody up, maybe RD, wherever she is, to move the mic around. And um, 
uh, I may table your question, uh, or I may choose to answer it as we go. If I table it, please make a note of it so that when we do open Q&A, we get back to them, because I want to deal with every uh, single one of them. Uh, however, uh, please try and be, don't, don't ask a question the way Joe asks a question. Um, it could be with a 45-minute preamble. Um, but do not start with what you had for breakfast yesterday morning. You try and be concise, okay, because we've got a lot of ground to go. Um, um, I'm not sure if we're already maxed out on private appointments or not, but you can check with Carla if there's any space left. It's um, first ask for, first get. So um, on our uh, first break, if you want some private time, you will uh, want to get to her. Um, any questions so far? Good. Um, not going to be a difficult group. Um, curiosity. Um, how many of you now um, uh, bring in 50% or more of your total revenue uh, as a result of words on paper? Okay, good. 75%. Almost all of it. Okay, all right. Um, let's get to work. Um, first thing we want to talk about is, is, uh, is advertising rather than direct mail, is print ads. And uh, quickly go through uh, the format uh, options. And again, I would preface this by saying, uh, it is your first page, by the way. Uh, I would preface this by saying that there are more options than these. Um, there's a gazillion ways to do this. Um, but again, I'm trying to give you shortcuts. And so what you see on this list are the things that we use most often, most frequently, uh, and that uh, work the best. And again, later when we get into the exhibits, you will see much of this um, in actual use. Um, I would call your attention to a couple of things on this list. Um, first of all, the, um, the advertorial type ad. Um, well, let's start with all copy. Um, many of you uh, are using all copy ads. Many of you will have publications give you grief about the way that they look. Um, and you will be leaned on to reduce the amount of copy, thereby increasing the point size of the type in the ad because the, your media people will tell you nobody will read that. Uh, here's pretty much the truth about all of that. Uh, somewhere, uh, the majority of the time, uh, maybe close to eight or nine times out of ten, uh, an all-copy ad will outpull uh, an ad with, uh, uh, that is a more traditional layout, uh, and maybe half of the time it'll outpull an ad with any kind of picture at all. Um, so if you want to play the statistics game, then when in doubt, you go all copy. Uh, and the next truth you need to know is, is that, with rare exception, the more copy, the better. Um, 
I'm always astounded when I see agencies get away with, and if you read USA Today, you'll see it there quite often, these full-page ads with one sentence in the middle of it. Um, uh, the, the ad agency's happy because, you know, it takes less work to do that <laughs> than to write copy, but you charge the same amount of money, uh, you know, in order to prepare the ad. Um, the, you should squeeze every word in that you can squeeze in and uh, not worry about how tiny the type is. They will get a magnifying glass, if necessary, to read it. Um, there's a guy, how many in here have ever seen Harvey Brody stuff? Does the name mean anything to anybody? Yeah, a few old-timers. Um, Harvey mostly did direct mail, not space, but the same principle actually applies. Harvey uh, ran a huge business for many years, and his direct mail pieces, um, even I was astounded. They would, they had the type so small and so tight. First of all, you did almost have to go get a magnifying glass in order to read it. And he would end the page and run the type up the side <laughs> and use the margin on the, how they printed it, I don't know, because there's no grip any way around. And it was this, it was blue ink on blue screens behind it and orange ink on orange screens behind it on newsprint paper. And anybody I ever showed it to, when I would show samples of his stuff to it, didn't matter who you showed it to, even savvy direct response people would say, uh, what, what is this guy thinking? This stuff can't work. Nobody will possibly read this. And he was enormously successful year after year after year after year. The principle is the person interested will squint to read if necessary, and the more you tell, the more you sell. So you want, you want full uh, usage of all of your space if you can possibly do it. Um, if you do use a picture, we'll talk a little bit about pictures, what's an appropriate photograph and what's an ineffective. Um, the advertorial formats where they are made to look like articles, um, most of the time, I'll pull any other format. Um, however, they're very easy to screw up. Uh, first of all, everybody knows what an advertorial is, right? Good, okay. Um, here's how they get messed up. They either get messed up in writing style, where somebody makes it look like an article, but then drifts into it being written not like an article. The idea is, is that at least until the very end, when you become salesy, the thing should read like a journalist wrote it, not like a salesperson wrote it. Uh, like someone actually came and wrote about you or about your product. You push the limit a little, but not a lot. The second way it gets messed up is in cosmetic appearance. Um, the thing needs to look as close to the other editorial material in the publication in which it runs as is humanly possible. So if you're going to use advertorials, for example, you can't do one ad and bicycle it out to 20 different magazines. The thing has to be retypeset, relayed out, and reformatted for every different publication that it's going to be in. If, that, if the publication it's in, all of their articles have three columns, your thing should have three columns. If another publication has two columns, it should have two. If another one has four, it should have four. The type styles should match. Uh, the, the place that you can mess around is the point size, but at least the first two paragraphs, the point size should match. And so to the greatest degree possible, the reader should be unable to distinguish ad from article in that publication. Um, the better you get at it, by the way, 
of course, the more trouble you'll have with the media in which you run the ad. Yeah. Yeah, the question is, should you change the copy style? Um, less so if you've got a winner than all of the cosmetics, uh, but it is a point well taken. Maybe not so much the example you use, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News, and World Report. At least they're all in the same genre. But if you're running the same ad in a broader diversity of, of, of uh, magazines, say you're running the ad in the tabloids, uh, you're running in uh, True Detective, uh, Popular Mechanics, but you're also running in uh, Esquire, GQ. Uh, now you've got you know, some real severe demographic differences in the reader. You've got some real severe differences in the writing style of the publications. And yes, you are probably going to have to make actual content changes to make your advertorial work. Okay? This thing works the way because of the same way infomercials worked in the early days of the TV infomercial business. They fool people. And so they get much higher readership than do ads. People who skip ads start to read these and then get involved and keep reading them. Just as people who skip commercials on TV used to get sucked into infomercials and it would be 15 or 16 minutes before they realized they weren't watching real TV. Uh, hence the massive amount of rules and regulations that got passed in order to try and fix that problem. Um, and hence our job is much more difficult today on TV. In print, unless they refuse to run it at all, mostly the worst they're going to do to you is make you put a paid advertisement slug uh, top or bottom on the ad. And uh, to the best that I've been able to determine, it makes no difference. Uh, nobody quite notices that. They go right into it. Um, the testimonial frame saw this ad before technique. Uh, uh, there's an example for you if you want to go to it in your book on XX back in the back section of your book. Once you do this a few times you'll get real used to it. Uh, so XX is back a long way. Um, The headline across, it's a half-page ad. The headline across the top of it says, you may have seen this ad many times before. Um, this, is, um, this is a way to take a dying ad and give it new life. Um, and all this is, is in this case, uh, Joe went to a page and a half. Uh, in many cases, these testimonials are just run around the ad as a new border. And so if you've got a full-page ad that works, you just shrink the ad enough that you can fit a border around it, and the border is made up of pictures and testimonials. And the, headline, the new headline across the top of the ad is exactly what it is here. You may have seen this ad many times before, but these people answered it. Often, this will take an ad that is dying, and all ads die. Um, that's why it's important to be prolific. Uh, because the, the odds of you getting an ad that you can live with for years anymore are slim. Uh, again, in the, the grand old days of direct response, you had guys like Joe Carbo with the Lazy Man's Way to Riches ad that ran unchanged for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Uh, you see very little of that these days. Um, it, it, your ads will die. Uh, sometimes they can be rotated, shelved, 
brought back out three months, six months, eight months, ten months later. The smaller the market you're advertising in, the quicker they die. Uh, this is one way. It's a cheap and dirty shortcut to take an ad that is starting to fade on you and buy it another X number of months of life simply by doing this kind of a border around it. Uh, another cheap and dirty trick that's on your list is taking an advertorial ad, uh, excuse me, is taking a regular ad uh, and putting advertorial copy around it. Often again, if the ad's been working and it starts to die, uh, this will bring it up. This is also in your book. It's on one of the next couple of pages. It looks like this. Now this is reduced. Eh, no, this one's not in your book. Stop looking for it. This one's not in your book. Uh, this is reduced from a tabloid size pub publication, so this was a full newspaper page. Uh, the ad in the box uh, was already a control, was an ad working, and then began to die. Uh, and it is given new life by shrinking the size of the ad and creating what appears to be article content around it. Uh, again, cheap and dirty trick. You don't have to recreate the ad and you buy yourself another month, two months, three months, uh, whatever you can get without having to do any new, new creative. Um, you will find the more of this that you do, the lazier you are and the less you want to do new, new creative. So the three things, the three main things that I know to do with ads that begin to fade are number one, create a rotation schedule so that as it begins to fade, you set it on the shelf, but a few months later you bring it out and try it again. Uh, and often you'll be able to have, instead of one ad now that serves you well for years and years and years, you may need four, five, or six in a rotation schedule, but you still won't have to continually create over and over again. The second thing you can do is shrink the ad and put a testimonial border around it using the, you've seen this ad before, but these people answered it idea in order to give the ad new life. And the third thing you can do is hybrid it, shrink it, and then put article content around it uh, so that it confuses it, makes it look different, and again gives it new life. Uh, Multi-page ads. Um, not a lot of people do this for the obvious um, reason, money. Um, however, um, it is an issue. When you are advertising successfully in a publication and uh, you're happy there and uh, your cost per lead is good or your cost per sale is good, all of your numbers are good and like really good. Uh, one, one of two things may be true. Uh, one thing that may be true is by making the ad even bigger than one page you may multiply the results more than the increase in cost. Uh, for example, you might go to a page and a half that's connected. You might go to a full page and a half page vertical on the next page and they have article copy in between the two ads and your ad is continued. Uh, you might go to, there are advertisers, and you've seen them from time to time, direct response advertisers, who will run two pages, three pages, four pages, uh, paid for inserts in a given pub publication. Uh, the other, uh, often more interesting option, is when you have a publication that works for you, if you can afford to test and you're experimental, uh, then you test 
two full-page ads in the same magazine, uh, making sure that they don't put them close together, and they are very different ads. If you have a copy-intensive ad that works for you now, then you try a pictorial intensive ad, less copy, pictures, more of a traditional ad. If you have a traditional ad that's working, then you try a copy intensive ad. Um, I had a client some years ago uh, uh, based here in Phoenix, a company called U.S. Gold. I'll show you some of their stuff later. Um, and uh, one of the things that was true about their business, the, uh, they market a, a, a home-based business op op opportunity, and there were only about I don't know, eight, ten magazines that consistently worked. Uh, and so, which was the problem with space ads, by the way, is you all, for most things you find you, have, you wind up with a relatively small stable of, uh, of, of, of media that you can use over and over and over again. And so if you want to crank the results up, what do you do? Uh, well, of the ones that he used repeatedly and regularly and successfully, there were two that were a whole lot more productive than the others. And so economically, even if the response, even if the cost per lead doubled, but you could crank up the numbers, it would have been a good trade for him. And he ran pictorial type ads. And so we went to a full copy, no pictures type of ad, ran them both in the same issue of the same magazine, separated only by pages and the crossover of leads was less, the duplication of leads was less than 10%. Uh, so uh, we almost doubled the number of leads generated per issue of the magazine without a significant increase in cost per lead or cost per order. It is almost as good as finding another new magazine that you can advertise in. It does not always work, but if you are in a situation like that where you have one type of ad that's working, it's working very, very well, you could justify an increase in cost per lead or cost per order in exchange for greater quantity um, or, or greater speed of acquiring leads and customers, then you want to test going in with the exact opposite kind of ad, look of ad, format of ad than you are running now and see if you can double or nearly double the uh, the uh, lead count. Uh, when you do lead generation, um, and I guess the first thing I would say to you about lead generation is, um, well, how many in here use advertising to make a one-step sale? The ad itself actually causes someone to send you money. Yeah, just a few of you. How many use how many of you use space advertising to generate leads? Okay, um, uh, you're right. Um, almost, uh, almost without exception, uh, unless you are, say, under 30 bucks in your price point, um, you will find that you will be better off with lead generation than with one-step sale. And uh, amongst other things, it lowers the bar uh, on what you have to do in order to get somebody to respond. Uh, and so I'm a big fan of lead generation. Uh, has, has a marketing strategy. Now, when you start to do lead generation advertising, uh, the simplest approach to it in formula is this one. It's to describe who you want to respond, who you don't want to respond, and some incentive for them to respond. 
There's only three things. That's all you got to know. Um, a lot of people uh, drop one of the two steps. Um, they either, in most cases, they omit describing who they don't want. Uh, your model for this should be personals ads. Um, and if you do a lot of lead generation, you ought to like collect good ones of those and keep them around in your swipe file because it's a good discipline just to look at them and remind yourself of the formula uh, because that's all personals ads are lead generation ads. That's what they are. Um, and, and, and they are all structured because they are fundamentally classified. They're small ads. They are all structured on this formula. They all, the person describes what kind of person they want. They typically throw in a couple of things about what they don't want. Uh, and, in this, and in that case, the incentive to respond is sort of implied. Uh, in our case, we have to add that with free report, free tape, free, typically free something. Um, here's, here's the three truths about all this. Uh, and you can summarize them under clarity. Uh, the more specific you are about who you want, typically the better the ad will produce. The more, specifically, the more specifically you describe who you don't want, the better the ad will produce. And the better the incentive, the better the ad will produce. And the way the incentive is improved is either by its title slash description, uh, so it is attractive by its content, or by bulk. Instead of a free report, it's a free report plus a free tape. Instead of a free report plus a free tape, it's a free report, free audio tape, and free videotape. And you keep upping the quantity ante of what is offered as the incentive. Now, the other thing you need to know about lead generation ads is, in a sense, the way you write them is like opening or closing a faucet to control water flow. And so you have to make decisions about how much flow you want. Um, if you make them as appealing as is humanly possible um, and you leave the descriptions sort of fuzzy, you cast a big net and you offer a great incentive, that's like opening the faucet as far as you can open the faucet to get as much water as you can possibly get. Okay. Now, some companies, that's what they want. Uh, for example, uh, I have a couple of clients who have large in-house telemarketing operations. And they got a lot of really good telephone salespeople sitting around who need people to talk to. They want every lead they can get. They don't care if it's a grade A or a grade D, because these people are good enough to turn Ds into Cs and Cs into Bs and Bs into As. And if you have that kind of business, then that has an impact on how you do your lead generation. If you have a business more like some of you in the room, where not only don't you have a room full of killer telemarketers, but like you don't have any. <laughs> um, and you, by which we laugh, but I mean, my choice, would, is, as you know, is at that end of the spectrum. And so you're, where your follow-up capabilities are very limited, um, then uh, often you are better off tightening the faucet way down, having a higher cost per lead, but having better qualified the lead through the very specific narrowed description of who should respond and who should not respond. 
And by the way, that's why it's a mistake to measure the effectiveness of advertising, be it print, broadcast, direct mail lead generation. It's a mistake to measure its effectiveness in terms of cost per lead. That's an indicative number, but it's not a conclusive number. Uh, because the only thing that counts is what? Cost per sale. Yeah. And, and, and actually, if you run a very sophisticated business, uh, cost per sale is only indicative. Total customer value measured in some period of time, incorporating a lot of upsells in back-end business is the real measurement, and often uh, one source will be better than the other, or one type of ad will be better than the other. But as a general principle, you want to view your lead generation advertising kind of like the faucet handle, and you want to strategically decide, do I want to open it all the way up? Do I want to tighten it? Do I want to screw it all the way down? Where do I want it in the middle? Uh, what do I want to trade off in cost per lead against having highly qualified versus not so well qualified leads? It actually is very easy and in fact dangerously easy in many cases to do lead generation ads that will produce lots of leads. Uh, but if they produce the wrong kind of leads or they produce leads that you are incapable of turning into value because of your follow-up system, then that's no better than an ad that produces no leads at all. Uh, I talked to a guy yesterday. He tried. He was supposed to FedEx the ad to me to show you. I have another version of it I'll show you if I don't get his uh, in today. Uh, this inner circle member he runs a little small ad agency, kind of like the agency that I ran many years ago, and he has a furniture store, chain of furniture stores as clients. And um, much, too, much over their uh, copious objections and arguments, he convinced them not too long ago to run uh, ad, an advertorial type ad um, and, uh, and a great, essentially a lead generation offer uh, which was a uh, hundred bucks worth of free stuff in the store, whether you buy anything or not. And um, uh, it, it turns out that he had two problems uh, with this. It was not in producing leads, um, as you might imagine. Well, I don't know, you, might, you may or may not imagine, but they, they ran one ad about this big in a small town in their local newspaper. And on Saturday morning, he had uh, 670 some odd people standing outside the door of the store uh, when the doors open. Uh, the first problem is he's got two sales guys. Um, um, problem number two is he's got a lot of little knick-knacky stuff in his store that you can buy for less than 100 bucks. Uh, real strategic problem there. Uh, and so consequently, they had a lot of people they didn't sell anything to, and they had a whole lot of people walk out with $99 lamps. Um, so you, when, you, when you do this sort of thing, you've got to make sure that all the pieces in the puzzle behind the promotion are there. And for those of you that work with clients, and I know there are at least several of you in the room, understand that if a client can find a way to foul up what happens behind a successful promotion, they will. Um, they are, if clients are good at anything, that's what they're good at. So you gotta, if, if you're going to create a promotion that generates a whole lot of leads on the front end, you better make sure that the steps are in place to take care of it on the back end. Uh, in terms of content, when you do lead generation, these are the five most reliable. Again, there's lots of other things you can do. Uh, but I'm going to try and narrow your focus to the things that work uh, most effectively, most certainly. 
and here they are. Uh, one is uh, fear, huge alarm. Uh, the sky is falling right now. Um, and, um, and when you do this, when you use alarm slash fear in selling, um, yep, got it, thank you very much. Um, could be worse, I've had him deliver mail. Um, I told somebody the other day, I was the worst I've ever had, um, I was in a ballroom and behind me was the kitchen. No, 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 this is not, no, it's not the kitchen noise, you can deal with that. Right in the middle, out through this door on either side, out through that door comes one guy chasing another guy with a knife. <laughs> Neither one of them speaking English, but both screaming very loud. And they go in front of me and fortunately out the other door. Um, what you wind up thinking about then from then on is, are they coming back? <laughs> you know? Um, anyway, when you do, when you use alarm uh, or try and engender fear to create leads, here's the big rule. You can't do it milk toasty. You can't do it, ha if you're going to scare them, they really got to be scared. Um, it takes a lot to to create inertia and so uh, to get them past inertia and so you, you you can't be halfway about that if you're going to use fear you really got to scare them second thing you can do is a huge promise keyword there is huge uh, if you want to open the faucet as far as you can open it when you do lead generation the bigger the promise the better um, and so uh, you know for the uh, I mean the the axiom you can never be too rich too thin um, you know, big numbers, big results, etc. Uh, curiosity. Um, it's used a lot in lead generation. It is, I think, one of the hardest to make work. Uh, you will see it used a lot. Uh, it's on the top list here because it is used so often. Personally, it's one I use the least. Uh, credibility. When you do lead generation, if you have the luxury of space, uh, it is very useful to have one or two or three lines that somehow uh, lend credibility to who you are or to the message. Um, and we'll talk later about all the different ways that you can create credibility and believability in advertising. Um, and maybe the most important factor that controls how successful lead generation is, is uh, how well uh, the message is matched to the market, uh, which is a recurring theme of mine. Um, the, uh, so here's some things to know. The bigger the market, the fuzzier the market, uh, the harder it is to make advertising in general and lead generation in specific work because you're trying to talk to too many different people. So it's much harder to make this stuff work, say, in USA Today than it is in Fly Fisherman Monthly uh, because there's only certain people reading Fly Fisherman Monthly and we can tightly match the message to them. In USA Today, there's all sorts of people reading USA Today. Um, so when you pick your, when you pick your battles, um, it's a real asset in direct response to pick battles very carefully. Um, I, uh, as mo probably all of you know, um, uh, one of the things that I do is speak on these big 
uh, success events. Um, it's a full day thing, and the people are in the sports arena, and we've got the presidents and the athletes and so forth, and Zig. And, uh, and uh, this year, I'm following Colin Powell a lot. Uh, two, years, uh, two years prior to this, probably half of the dates every year I followed uh, Schwarzkopf. And uh, these two guys are really interesting guys for a variety of reasons to a marketer. One is that they are the first uh, made-by-TV military uh, personalities ever in history. Um, they, are, they are the Tony Robbins of war. In that, uh, well, they had their, you know, they had their own long-running, multiple hours of day infomercial for months, and everybody watched them. Uh, we know they watched them because during Desert Storm, the regular infomercial industry took a horrible beating. Uh, worse than running up against the Super Bowl or the World Series or whatever was running up against the war. Man, everybody was watching the war. And uh, so it made these guys, larger than life, famous people. And uh, as a result, it made them rich, um, uh, which is also probably the first of that that has happened, not from money from defense contractors, but like <laughs> arguably making an honest living um, after their military uh, careers. Um, I, I'm not sure if he's still at that level, but last year and the year before, for example, General Schwarzkopf's speaking fee was $75,000. Um, you can, when you only do an hour, you can like squeeze in two, sometimes three a day. Um, you, you know, don't take a lot. Uh, and then all the NBC, you know, the NBC contract and the board of directors stuff and so forth. And uh, so one day we're, we're back in the green room and, and we're talking about all this. We're talking business. And um, um, I said to him, uh, he quoted a particular statistic about his income, which I won't repeat, but I said to him, Knowing all of this, that uh, in a very short period of time after the end of your military career, you become wildly wealthy, uh, the hardest way it is to accumulate wealth in America, no leverage, just from earnings. Um, knowing this and knowing how this has happened by being made by TV, uh, not just political considerations now, but career considerations, what do you think is the single smartest thing you guys did? And he said, easy answer, we picked a war we couldn't lose. <laughs> he said, if we had gone over there and got our butts kicked or been sending back body bags, I couldn't get 75 cents to give a speech. But we picked people, you know, who were surrendering to anybody with a box of Hostess Twinkies. <laughs> got food, take the guns, you know. Um, it wasn't as good as Grenada, but, it, but, you know, it was a flashier war. So they picked a battle they knew they couldn't lose. Now, there's a great marketing principle there that affects a whole lot of what we do here today and tomorrow. And that is the receptivity of the recipient has more to do with the success or failure of the marketing pieces than do the pieces themselves. Now, there's lots of different ways to say it. Halbert explains this by doing the starving crowd story. You've probably all heard that. 
um, a, a selection is, is where the battle is won or lost. You, you raised your hand real quick. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's why we tape it, because sometimes, yeah. The, the receptivity of the recipient has more to do with the success or failure of marketing than do the marketing pieces themselves. And that's why, by the way, you don't, in most applications that most of you would be dealing with, you don't have to get as good at this as is a top pro copywriter in order to get the results you need. If you deal with a highly receptive recipient, and so picking your battles becomes enormously important. Um, and when you do lead generation, see there's only two ways to get um, receptive re recipients known to be receptive. One is, well there's three ways actually, one is your house list, your own customers. But setting that aside, you can either go into the mailing list arena and essentially pay for the privilege of using someone else's receptive recipients, or you can do lead generation advertising to find them on your own. And that's what you're looking for. That's the purpose of lead generation advertising, is to ferret out these people who will be uh, highly receptive to what it is that you have to say. Uh, so picking battles that we can win, that's what lead generation uh, advertising is uh, all about. When we switch to direct mail and talk formats, um, here are the most reliable ones you have to work with. Um, first of all, let's talk self-mailers versus enveloped mail. Um, Everybody would prefer, if you wouldn't, you're not very bright, everybody would prefer to do self-mailers. If we had our druthers as marketers, we would do self-mailers. Why? Cheaper. Cheaper, faster, quicker. Don't got to fold it, don't got to put it in an envelope. We'd all do self-mailers. Uh, most of us don't because they don't work as well. Uh, however, uh, there's a couple things to keep in mind when you make this decision. Self-mailer versus do I put it in an envelope. One is pure economics. Um, and uh, a great uh, principle as an aside is no amount of marketing savvy, no amount of, uh, of product quality, no other factor can overcome bad economics. Uh, so if, if your numbers are bad, you can't fix it with marketing. You have, to, you have to live within the realm of reason. So the guy that owns a Baskin-Robbins store and is going to do direct mail to acquire customers for his Baskin-Robbins store is almost certainly limited to self-mailer formats because his transaction size and his total customer value number are both so small that he cannot afford to invest much in customer acquisition. Mailing to those same people, the chiropractor or the dentist, can almost certainly afford and should do enveloped mail for the exact same reason. His transaction value and his total customer value number are so high that he can afford to spend a lot of money on customer acquisition. So 
depending upon your business's economics, you may be forced into using these formats. Um, and if you are, then you just have to make them work as best as possible. The second thing to know about self-mailer formats is that often uh, they do work as part of a sequence. They shouldn't be your only piece, but when you are sequencing, if you open the sequence with enveloped mail, then at one or more points during the entire sequence, you can go to various kinds of self-mailers and be effective. Um, we have a sequence, for example, uh, in one business where I'm heavily involved, where there's three letters, four postcards, three letters, four postcards. The postcards work because they're set up by the letters. If you just mail the postcards to start with, which we've tested, uh, you can't run the business that way. Uh, your, your top self-mailer formats, the ones that small businesses use most often, of course, is, is the trifold, right? You get those all the time in your mail. Maybe some of you use them. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and unfortunately, they are thrown out a lot. Uh, it's probably the most common format, uh, the most commonly seen format by consumers, um, and therefore, uh, you use it only when you have to. And when you do use it, um, you've got to really go to extremes on its outside to try and keep it from being tossed because people are virtually immune to that, which means, for the most part, we want to use other formats. We want to use big foldovers. We want to use odd-shaped foldovers. Uh, we want to print it sideways so it looks like it's different. Uh, we want to stay out of the most commonly seen format. Uh, postcards and oversized postcards. Um, oversized postcards are a bargain, even though you have to pay full postage because you don't have to pay for an envelope, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have a number of uh, clients who get good results taking their successful full-page ads and simply reproducing them on an 8.5 by 11 postcard uh, and doing postcard mailings. Uh, again, something worth testing. If you have an ad that works, uh, it may very well work on a large postcard mailed to the same circulation base that gets the magazine, which has a side issue. Some people will question that, so let me deal with that. I'll often have a client say to me, if I'm running a full-page ad in XYZ magazine, why would I mail the list of the subscribers to XYZ magazine at overall a much higher cost than just running the ad, doesn't everybody see the ad? This is really bad thinking. Um, it, it's understandable, but it's bad thinking. Um, it, it, actually, the exact opposite is true. If you are running a full-page ad in a magazine and getting good results, you definitely want to test mailing the list of the subscribers to the magazine, and you have a very high likelihood of being successful. Uh, don't they all see the ad in the magazine? Yes and no. Uh, depending on the magazine, uh, whether it's niche or mainstream, how avid are its readers, etc., uh, maybe they all do look at the magazine. Uh, but some just skim. Some just read articles. Some get magazines and let them pile up for four months before they look at that particular magazine. Some get magazines and might surprise you, hardly ever look at them, but they pay for them and they get them anyway. 
but beyond that, having an isolated piece arrive in the mail is different than being an ad in a magazine. It's a different experience for the prospect. And when you do direct mail and they open an envelope or they get a postcard or whatever, at that moment, if you capture their attention, you now get to sell in a competitive vacuum. There is no other distraction. Uh, they're not eager to turn the page to see what's on the next page. They're not distracted by the color picture on the page next to your ad that they're trying to squint and read. You got them. It's one-on-one -on -one selling. The third thing is, is that you can buy speed. Um, if you have a successful ad that runs in a magazine and you pull two to one against media costs, three to one against media costs, four to one against media costs, you're a big hero. So let's say an ad costs $3,000 and you do nine, $10,000 worth of sales every time that you run it. That's good and we should all dance in the streets. But if that magazine has a circ of 50,000, 100,000 people and we could maybe get a 10% market share, think how long it's going to take to get it that way. If you can get it through direct mail, you can get it infinitely faster. Now, sometimes that's valuable and sometimes it's not. If you're trying to establish position in a marketplace, if you're trying to get as many customers into your system as possible to sell them a lot of other stuff, then you want to buy the speed. Um, if you don't have those incentives, you may not want to buy the speed. Uh, so oversized postcards. Uh, regular size postcards uh, can work for lead generation. They can work as follow-up pieces. Same principle applies to them as do ads. Pack as much copy onto them as is humanly possible. Don't worry about the fact that it's very hard to read. Uh, the interested folks will read it. Um, my preference, uh, of course, is to go to enveloped pieces whenever possible. And uh, when, you, when you go there, the first big decision you have to make is whether you're going to do blind or teaser. Right? Whether your envelope is going to try and sneak up on them uh, or whether it is going to reveal the fact that it has a commercial purpose and probably includes uh, materials designed to try and sell them something. Um, the, the blind envelope approach, um, what some call A-pile mail, personal look mail, um, uh, is preferable, particularly in new customer acquisition, but if you do it, you need to do it perfectly. Um, if you do anything at all to reveal that that piece is not personal mail, is not individual onesie-twosie mail, uh, is not, has a commercial purpose, then once you have stuck the very tip of your toe over that line, you might as well go all the way over the line. You cannot reveal at all. So I see a lot of people trying to do A-pile mail, um, and, they'll, and they'll do all sorts of dumb stuff. I mean, they'll, 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 they'll put address labels on it. Um, or they'll have the Pitney Bowes uh, meter imprint, not only with the postage, but with their corporate slogan. You know, Pitney Bowes will put your corporate slogan or your logo in the deal. And so they've done this thing where the return address looks like it's typed. They've handwritten addressed all the envelopes, and then they ran them all through the Pitney Bowes machine. And it's got the, you know, excellent service since 1803 in, in the meter imprint. Well, you stepped over the line. 
see? And as soon as you step over the line, you might as well go all the way. Uh, the best sneak up mail, the very best, um, comes from a name uh, of someone they know or someone famous uh, to them, may not necessarily be famous to you, but famous to them, um, or a professional peer. Uh, for example, if you sell to doctors, um, we found an enormous bump over any other type of mail comes from a plain Jane, totally disguised, has onesie twosie, personal mail, and the return address is the name of another doctor. That's better than a non-doctor name because it gets past the gatekeepers. Uh, it appears to be personal mail from one colleague to another and therefore it moves to the end person. If you market to lawyers, mail from a lawyer, from a law firm, uh, will work best. Uh, if you market in a niche market and you happen to have a champion uh, whose name is known uh, to huge numbers of people or, if, or, or can be so identified on the envelope, then that will work best. But if you're going to do personal mail, it's got to totally look. Does it make a difference if it's got live stamps on it? Yes, it does. Does it, does it make a difference if it's hand addressed? Yes, it does. Or individually typewriter looks like a typewriter address? Yes, it does. Um, can, you, can, can you muck it up with any kind of, uh, of marks? Uh, no. Uh, and then the second thing that you must know is when you do that kind of an envelope, um, when I open the flap, I can't be instantly disappointed, uh, angered. I can't immediately realize I've been conned. So you can't do a personal looking envelope and the first thing I see is a full color brochure. You can't do a personal looking envelope and the first thing I see is an order form. You would be amazed how many people stuff their envelopes that way. And if you use outside mailing houses, by the way, you really got to watch this. The order in which the stuff is put in the envelope is important. How do people, number 10 envelope, how do most people open it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the flap to them. Not the front to them, the flap to them. Not everybody does it. So if you say to yourself, well, I don't do it that way, I mean, some people turn them sideways and tear the end off. Some people open them front to them, but most people open them flap facing them. Okay. That means you stuff from flap forward. So whatever you want them to see first is up against the flap. Whatever you want them to see second is next, third next, fourth next, and so forth. I would say that 80% of all the direct mail I get that is enveloped mail is stuffed in the ex exact wrong way. Order form first. Last thing you want them to see is an order form. And if you got an order form that is a loose separate insert and it's printed only on one side, it should be folded in, not out. So that they got to open it to find a form. Better to have the blank side showing or something else showing. So if we're going to do personal mail and I open up the flap, what must I see when I open the flap? Yeah, I got to see a letter. That's right. Uh, if I see anything else, the game is over. Right? I know. 
In many cases, if you mail, if you do, if you're a business-to-business marketer, and you send it out in a big envelope, big flat envelope, but it was made to look like personal mail. When I open the flap on the back and pull the stuff out, I better see a letter. If I see anything else, the jig is up. So if you're going to go that route, you've got to, again, go all the way. You can't be half pregnant with this thing. And then, in, in decent quantities, even funnier little things make differences. Uh, there's statistically, now if you're mailing small quantities, you won't see this show up, but if you're mailing big quantities, for example, uh, and you're doing personal type mail, uh, multiple stamps, I'll pull a single stamp. Um, commemorative stamps, special looking stamps, I'll pull regular stamps. Uh, stamps put on cockeyed, um, upside down, sideways, you know, sloppy looking. I'll pull a neat looking application of the stamps. Um, all of that will show up in big numbers. You won't be able to measure it in small numbers. How about a colored envelope instead of a plain white business looking envelope neon? Okay, it's on our list. His question is what about a colored envelope? What about like a neon colored envelope? Um, uh, again, if you're doing pure A pile, you're doing personal look mail, and you're trying to fool the recipient into believing that this is a not mass produced, a single piece of mail that was sent to me from a person, then the only place you can do color is if it is particularly appropriate to that application. So if you're fooling somebody with a, with a, with a letter from a woman and it's a square size envelope, an invitation size envelope instead of a number 10 envelope and you're going to hand do the return address and hand address the thing in blue, maybe pink, maybe pastel blue, maybe whatever. If you're doing pure business, you're almost relegated to plain white. Now where the colors come in, let me get to that. Uh, I'll, I'll, all right, I'll come back to it. All right. uh, your other kind of sneak up envelopes, if you don't do personal, looks like I sent it to you. The other kind of sneak up is the official look. Um, where it appears to be from uh, usually most of these applications, it appears to be from a government agency. Uh, in our exhibits tomorrow, there's one person here in the room, I have his stuff, I'll show you, that uh, his whole campaign is built that way. The envelopes, the thing when you open it up inside, uh, looks like a government notice. Um, uh, it's done very well to the degree that disclaimers must be on it, and I'm sure he has regulatory problems. If he doesn't, he will. But um, the, the more effective these things are, the more problems you have. Um, but that's the other kind of sneak up, is where it looks like it came from some kind of government agency. Uh, the best stuff of that that is done, um, and you should get on one of their mailing lists in order to get it all, is done by the political uh, the National Party political fundraising groups. Um, for Republicans, it's like the Republican Senatorial Inner Circle, um, uh, the, the Presidential Task Force. The, the Democrats have equivalents of these. I don't happen to know what they are because I'm not a Democrat, but they have them. And so whichever you are, 
um, it, it break down and give them 100 bucks or 200 bucks once, and then you'll be on the mailing list a lot. And, um, and they do this better than anybody I've ever seen. They are brilliant at it. Um, uh, the model that is in uh, the ultimate uh, sales letter book, I think, came from the Republican Presidential Task Force. Uh, they are masters at this official-looking document thing that you must open. Uh, I've got a hand up all the way in the back. Yeah, uh, those, uh, you know, the, essentially the fake express mail envelope. Um, tell you an interesting story about that. Back before they were commonplace, um, you may remember this, um, uh, at a company called General Cassette, um, we did a mailing to um, the National Speakers Association list, and this would have been in, I don't know, 1979 maybe. And uh, we created a red, white, and blue uh, document envelope, uh, which we called General Express. And we made it look just like the priority mail thing. And um, we mailed umpteen thousands of them. I don't remember how many, three or 4,000. The first problem we had was the post office refused to take them. Uh, we mailed these bulk, by the way. Um, the post office refused, the Phoenix post office refused to accept them. Uh, our guys went down there with all these to mail and they refused to accept them. And uh, we went, I don't know, three or four days with this deal. Our attorney had to go meet with the postmaster to get these things into the mail. And, um, and they, they freely confessed. Uh, the postmaster told them, that, uh, by regulations, we got to take them. But I know what's going to happen. They're, we're going to deliver these like they were express mail, because our guys are not going to know the difference. <laughs> well, and just think of what happens. You know, this thing lands in the Tupelo post office, and the postmaster says, shoot, they didn't send us a memo on this thing, but, you know, <laughs> we better get it delivered. Harry, jump in the Jeep. You know, I mean, that's what's going on. And, uh, and consequently, that is exactly what happened. Um, we had uh, prospects and customers telling us stories of uh, the guy in the Jeep arriving at midnight, banging on the door uh, to, uh, to uh, deliver this piece of bulk mail. Uh, probably the best bargain I ever got from the post office. Um, and and when I didn't know it was happening, what the first sign that it was happening was response like the next day, you know. And we very quickly said to ourselves, "Couldn't happen with bulk mail." So guess what? I mean, that was not our intent. Was not to steal money from the post office. Our intent was you use these things to you know get past gatekeepers and create. But the happy side effect was, you know, we got a lot of express mail at bulk mail prices. That will not happen today. Uh, these things now. We were one of the if not the earliest user of this, we were certainly very early in the game. Uh, today, these are commonplace. Uh, there are commercial vendors who have 86 different varieties of these things, including probably the one that you have, uh, that can be bought at fairly reasonable prices, or obviously you can create and produce uh, your own. Uh, you won't fool the post office with them. 
uh, in most business-to-business -business applications, they won't do you much good anymore. Um, and in fact, in most business-to-business -business applications, if you really are going to use priority delivery to try and, and have maximum impact and get past the gatekeepers and all of that, FedEx still works infinitely better than everybody else. Um, in many offices, FedExes are dispensed immediately. Everything else, including priority mail and airborne, stacks up with the first class mail. Uh, you will still fool consumers. Uh, and so if you're a consumer marketer, some of these commercially available things that look like express mail or one that you would create for yourself uh, will fool a consumer. Uh, and it will get the piece opened when perhaps under other circumstances it would not. Uh, so it can be useful in some applications, not useful in uh, others. Um, that pretty much completes sneak up. Now, if you're not going to do sneak, yeah. Uh, in using a personalized uh, approach, would it be? Would you recommend a, a, hand, a printed, handwritten return address? And B, could you use a return address label, much like one? Yeah. Here's the high. First of all, here's the. Here's the historic, his question is handwritten, actually handwritten, what do you do with the return address? Um, first of all, it varies a little bit by application. For example, it varies some whether you're going to the executive at the office or mom and dad at home. Okay. So there's some variance there. The historic hierarchy has been, um, in more applications than not, handwritten wins. Um, and so, uh, the handwritten return address can be printed because you can't instantly tell, particularly if it's the same color as what it's addressed in. Most people aren't going to spot that that's different than this. Um, uh, but the actual addressing, nothing beats real handwriting. Uh, and so far, all of the technology, even the stuff, the best stuff you'll see that is done mechanically and again, if you want to get on some great mailing lists and get some great pitch packages and see more money, you know, the, the most sophisticated stuff out there, first of all, the political arena is one because they have all the money in the world to spend. The second arena is uh, the evangelical community, the, the Billy Grahams and the Jimmy Swaggarts of the world. Uh, pick your preference or pick them all. But... Uh, uh, they have the best mechanical technology for faking handwriting. Uh, but even theirs is maybe a 7 on a 1 to 10 when handwriting is a 10 on a 1 to 10. And so a lot of mailers who use handwritten stuff mobilize armies of what are now called soccer moms, um, which is what we do in Chicago in the JPDK business, is armies of soccer moms who address this mail at home while they're watching Oprah. And, um, uh, and you can't beat it. Now, the, the other question you raise is an interesting one because it's fairly new to me, uh, but I have now seen some clients getting results with it, and it makes perfect sense once you think of it. Um, and why I haven't seen more of it, I don't know. And that is for the return address label, using these crappy little return address labels that you get from, like, Walter Drake. Yeah, are you all know what I'm talking about? that are, you know, some of them will have a little, you can get them with like a little puppy dog or a Mickey Mouse or, a, you know, a, a whatever on them, and, and they're dirt cheap, and having those things 
stuck on there and stuck on badly, just like you would stick the stamps on badly. Um, uh, you know that again. Remember, when you're doing this, your object is to fool them, and so start uh, watch your own mail for a couple weeks. It's pretty easy to separate what you know the the greeting card you got from Grandma in in Des Moines from the rest of your mail, and so the trick here is to maybe make it look like the one you got from Grandma. So that's handwritten, and the handwriting's not real good, and, and the little address label stuck on there bad, and the stamp's upside down, and I mean, those things all matter. Yeah? Put on the return address itself. Either, what, what do you put on the return address yourself? Well, either uh, nothing, or a street address only. Uh, never put a P.O. box. Dead giveaway. Uh, be amazed, by the way, how many people in mail order still use P.O. boxes. I mean, it's as antiquated as the ringer washer. Um, uh, but even a street address, keep in mind, like, if you put a suite number and you're not doing business-to-business -business mail, you've telegraphed you're a business mailer. Okay? So if you have to have a number, at least just a number sign and the number, not suite, and if you're going to consumers, preferably, if you have to have a number, make it apartment number, not suite number, um, uh, or a name. Some people will just do initials. Some people will do a name. Um, uh, first to first and, and last, or a first initial and a last name. Ob hopefully, obviously, never a company name, never an organization name. Uh, again, if you have a champion that is known to them, you know, like, I, I don't know, you're, you're, you're mailing to, uh, to uh, high testosterone males and Joe Montana is a client and you can get the letter from Joe, then certainly in the return address you put Joe Montana. I mean, you, you don't want to hide that, you want to use it. And in, in that case you might even go to a teaser type envelope and use his picture whole other thing we haven't talked about yet. Um, if you're mailing to doctors, the best thing up there is a doctor name. It doesn't necessarily need to be a known name. Uh, when we were actively doing a lot of mailing to fill seminars with dentists and chiropractors, we started out using corporate identity. We went to a blind identity and we outpulled everything when we went and paid a doctor a couple thousand dollars a year to use his name and his address and a little lift note from him. Because it has to be congruent when they open the envelope, remember. So if the letter is from, if the envelope is from Dr. John Smith, the first thing they see when they open the flap better be from Dr. John Smith. And so if your whole sales letter is not going to be from Dr. John Smith, then the first thing has to be a lift note, and it has to be from Dr. John Smith. Uh, Physicians Mutual, big mailer, uh, uh, mails mostly under their corporate logo, but sometimes they blind mail under Art Linkletter. If, they, if the mail is made to look like it's from Art Linkletter, the first thing you see when you open the envelope is a little lift note from Art. And it appears to be handwritten and you know, so forth. Okay? Somebody else had a hand up. Yeah? I've noticed uh, immediately after the official transaction, a house, a uh, refinance, buying a new house, when I get a lot of mail that's new to me from financial institutions, I get a lot of these junk remarks that look like, like an official form. Sometimes I have to be careful to make sure I'm not ordering life insurance. Yes. Uh, the mortgage industry, the, he said you buy a new home uh, or refinance a home, 
or suddenly clean up a credit rating or get a new credit. Yeah, you will get a lot of mail. And, and the mortgage, the finance industry, is heavily, they get this. Uh, because even the big companies have grown out of street guys. Uh, and, and so they understand this. And in many cases, they cross the line into deceptiveness to the point that they have regulatory activity problems as a result of what they do. But their campaigns are very similar to this one I'm going to show you tomorrow, uh, where, yeah, you, you really do have to look really close to make sure it's not from your bank or from some government agency or whatever. Um, those t when you go that far, there's a yin and yang to what you do. Uh, the yin is you get it read because you sit there and study it mostly to try and figure out what is this and is this important and is it. The yang is you do make people mad because they are now, you know, frustrated and upset. Um, uh, there's a subscriber of mine who uses a direct mail campaign that this thing look perfectly mirrors lawsuit material. I mean, you get it, you think you're being sued. You open it up, you think you're being sued. It takes you a good two or three minutes with this package to realize you've not been sued. Um, and uh, whether you've ever been sued before in your life or not, these things do tend to cause your stomach to flip-flop a little when you first get them. Some people immediately get mad, some people get scared, but there is a visceral emotional reaction to this thing. And, uh, and a lot of people get very angry when they realize what has happened to them. And so he literally gets hate mail. And he gets complaint mail sent to various and sundry regulatory agencies. Uh, however, it's a highly effective and highly profitable piece. Uh, one of the things to consider when you're going to go that far is whether you care or not about the percentage of the market who now hates you. Well, in many cases, marketers don't. You know, if you're a big mainstream marketer and you're mailing hundreds of thousands or millions of pieces at a time, and fundamentally you have an unlimited quantity of prospects, or it's such a diverse market that they don't talk to each other, they don't see each other, then you don't care who you pee off. You only care about the results. Now, if you're in a little narrow market, you know, you market to, uh, uh, to well, even dentists, there's 100,000 of them, but if you market to dentists, that you don't want to do because they all talk to each other, they all go to conventions to each other, they all go to state meetings with each other, they write into their trade journals about this nasty SOB, that, you know, all of that, and, and, and because it's a finite market and you're trying to live there on an ongoing basis, now you care. So you've got to decide you know, whether you can live with that yin or yang. Uh, anybody else? Uh, I already had you, yeah. Just to clarify the difference between business-to-business -business mailing and mailing to someone's home, I mean, obviously, if I'm going to do business-to-business, -business, I'm not going to be putting the, the label on, or do I? Interesting. Okay. Good, good, good question. Interesting question. By the way, for those of you with the weak bladders, feel free to wander in and out of here, but we will break about 1030. Um, um, the, the question was uh, the difference between consumer mail, business-to-business -business mail, and then he said, I'm if I'm doing business-to-business -business mail and I'm mailing to a Fortune 500 executive, I'm obviously not going to do hand-addressed envelopes and stamps upside down. And then he stopped himself and said, 
or am I? And, uh, and it was a very good thought. Uh, first of all, in general, the, dis the difference between consumer marketing and business-to-business -business marketing is greatly exaggerated in most people's minds. Uh, uh, it's not a big, broad, thick line. It's a real fine, narrow line. And it's real important to remember that Lee Iacocca made decisions as chairman of Chrysler. He made his buying decisions and his response decisions in his office at Chrysler the same way he decided what golf clubs to buy at home while he was reading Golf Digest magazine sitting on the can. Right? He, he's Lee Iacocca no matter which place he's at. You know? And a lot of people miss all that. They think somehow it has to be dramatically different because the guy's in the boardroom. He's still usens. You know? The biggest thing, the biggest distinction in business-to-business -business marketing is the added challenge of getting past the gatekeeper to the decision-maker, rather just getting the decision-maker recipient to open the piece. That's the biggest difference. Um, uh, now, in ge generally speak, more often than not, if you're going to do blind mail in a business-to-business -business environment, yeah, you're not going to do handwritten. Uh, you're, it's going to look like it was typed. Um, it may be, even be okay to put a postage meter imprint on it instead of stamps. Uh, in many cases, if you have high transaction value, you're going to be using other types of delivery rather than mail, et cetera, et cetera. But not always. In some cases, um, I, I did some work some years ago, and the guy's still a subscriber. This guy sells uh, computer systems. Uh, he's a competitor. Somebody turn the room. He sells computer systems in the trucking industry. And so he's mailing to CEOs of trucking companies. And he has used, over the years, some of the wildest envelope formats I've ever seen, including one campaign where it clearly looked like it was hand-addressed from a woman. It had just initials for the return address. The envelopes were pink, I think, or pastel blue. They were all sprayed with perfume, so they stunk to high heaven. Uh, these pieces all got past the gatekeepers. <laughs> Secretary didn't open them, passed them right on. Um, as you might imagine, he got some flack, but very successful piece. Uh, and you got to hope your prospects have a sense of humor. Um, so, you know, there's no ironclad rule. All I can do for you is narrow your options. Hey, does that make sense to you? Okay. Yes? When responding to a lead, leading to small business owner, for example, would you try to respond in email or on the event event? Good question. When responding to a lead, do you sneak up on them or not? Uh, most cases, no. Which brings us, so I'll move now, from sneak up mail to teaser copy mail. If we're going to cross the line, and we're going to clearly identify that this is commercial mail in any way, shape, or form, then the first rule is you might as well go all the way. You, 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 there's no point in just showing a little. You might as well now show a lot. So what circumstances do you do that in? In many cases, the first and most predominant circumstance is the one you've just identified. It's someone who has requested information from you, will presumably be looking for it, and will recognize you by name or picture, somehow uh, they'll want to open what it is that you are sending them. In those cases, sneak up is rarely the most productive of the two options. 
uh, far better to reveal who you are. Uh, almost without exception, uh, and unfortunately Ron walked out of the room because it's probably a mistake he's making. Um, uh, it is on his sales letter, which I'm going to show you. For example, if you're responding to a lead generated by TV and they saw you on TV, you want your picture on the envelope preferably a picture of, from the show that they saw you in because that's how they identify you more than anything. They may not remember your name, they may not, but they remember seeing the show. If you had your picture in an ad and they responded to the ad, but, so that's one instance. Uh, the other instance is uh, you will, probably most of you, ha coming up through direct response ranks as you have, have had the A-pile approach preached to you like gospel. Um, and, um, and, it, and as I said, it's my preference too. Uh, and it's easier to make work in many cases. But there's more, there's huge, by a huge differential, there's more direct mail that has teaser copy on the envelopes than does not. The A-pile approach is still used in the minority of the cases. And many very sophisticated big mailers have split tested and have wound up with controls that are of the junkier looking type. So the first way you do the junky look is in the scenario we just described. The second way is you should always split test it. The truth of the matter is we never know until in a given situation we do enough testing to find out whether the sneak up approach is going to outpull a junk mail billboard, teaser copy laden approach or not. Uh, you take companies like Boardroom Reports, Hume Publishing, I'll show you some of Hume stuffs later, uh, almost without exception their controls all finally wind up to be the junk mail looking teaser copy laden envelopes. Uh, and, and again the big rule if you do go that way, go all the way, use every square inch, use the front of the envelope, use the back of the envelope, uh, 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 use it now to deliver a message that will get it opened. Uh, once you've revealed a little, you might as well reveal a lot. Mm -hmm. Other questions on envelopes? Yep. Uh, Tony? I have a question on split mail. What is the minimum number to actually do a valid test? Two. Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> question was, what's the minimum number to do that's a valid number for a split test? Two. Um, uh, th there's a handful of answers to that. Uh, one is, it, it, the big guys will tell you that uh, it depends on the size of the universe, but if it's huge universes, like say a company like Publishers Clearinghouse or Reader's Digest, right? Uh, they're going to call tests 25,000, 50,000 pieces, somewhere approximating 1% of the list universe that, that, that they plan, plan, plan to use. Um, small businesses, uh, uh, I, 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 my big thumb rule is like 5% of the universe. So if you got a list of 10,000 that you're going to work, uh, 500 is a pretty good number. Um, when you get down into testing 50s and 100s, there's too many variables beyond the list and the piece that can, that can, that can make the test er erroneous. Uh, geographic bias, uh, day of the week bias that it hit, 
uh, all sorts of things that in 50 or 100 could, could blow it. It's the deal with the deck of cards. We shuffle all the decks, even with the new machines that supposedly stop clumping still. If you sit in Vegas and play blackjack long enough, you're going to see it where all the aces are at the end. And so if you don't go all the way through the deck, you don't find the aces. Okay? Yes? Okay, enough questions. Um, when you do eight pound mail, you open up the envelope, it's okay to have a picture, it's okay to have a headline, and or should it be individually addressed to the person to whom the envelope was addressed? Uh, perfect hierarchy. Uh, it is individually addressed to the person to whom the envelope was addressed. Rarely is that economically sensible. Uh, but will it give you a bump? Yeah, it'll give you a bump. Um, should it have a picture and a headline? More often than not, yes but the rest of it better be letter look. Uh, and ideally, uh, let's say the first page of the letter has a picture and a headline at top, and then it starts, dear whatever, and it's a typewriter look for the body copy. When you, have, when you get that folded and are going to insert it in the envelope, insert it with the middle panel, not the first panel facing out. So what I see when I first see it looks like a letter. Now when I take it out and start to handle it, the headline and all of the stuff designed to get me to read it pops up in front of me. You with me? Okay. Again, a lot of people muck up the way they stuff these things. Yes, R.D.? Yeah, once you've gone, let me show you a couple. We'll get to them in your exhibit book, but you don't need to go there right now. Um, here's, here's a current uh, control piece for uh, Hume, Hume Financial. Okay? They've used every square inch of the envelope. Okay? Uh, they're not kidding anybody. Okay? We got, I mean, they printed the flap. Okay? The deal starts on the flap. Okay? Um, this is actually the start of the sales letter. It's repeated inside in the sales letter. These are testimonials. Uh, a lot of boardroom report stuff will be massive bullet points about what's inside. Um, this is um, one of Bill Phillips' pieces. Um, you know, before and after photos, testimonials, uh, bullet points. Uh, once you've crossed the line, you might as well use every square inch, and its job is to get them to, it's, it's the headline job. Its job is to compel them to want to open the envelope and read what's inside. Okay? But there's, there's absolutely no point in having an envelope with two bullet points on the front of it. See, now that's dumb, you know, because now you, you've shown your hand, but you left all this blank space that you could have used to try and get them to open the envelope. Not smart. Okay? Coming forward. Jim, uh, one before you. Jim, behind you. You're next.
No, once you've, see, once you've crossed the line, and you're going to lead to have requested the information. So you're mailing to people who have responded to an ad and have asked for this information. Once you've crossed that line, you might as well cross the line all the way. So you, if you're going to put a label on it, you might as well put the label inside a great big box and it, with a red arrow, and the this is the information you requested uh, from our ad in, uh, in Heating and tech, tech, Technology Monthly. Uh, and down here, you might as well say, open and read this immediately. Uh, important free offer expires in eight days. And on the back, you might as well put testimonials, or you might as well put bullet points. You might as well junk up the whole envelope. As soon as you've revealed, then you might as well go all the way. If your picture was in the ad, put your picture on the envelope. Yeah, once you've crossed the line, there's just no point, again, in being half pregnant. I mean, either be or don't be. Okay? Now, wait a second. I'm sorry, I can't see your badge and I forget your name, but... Okay, question is, you use the sneak-up approach, they now know they've been fooled, what happens on your follow-up mailings? Uh, the first thing to remember is, when you fool them, be congruent at least early. They will be most resentful if fooled by the envelope and immediately realize they've been fooled. Okay? So, let, if it said confidential on the outside, there ought to be something in the content early that at least is arguably confidential. Okay? Uh, if it was from a person, the letter should be from that person. If the letter can't be, then the lift note should be from that. There should be some congruency that minimizes the aggravation factor. Uh, the stuff where it's made to look like a government agency and scared the bejesus out of them, that gets tougher. Okay? Your follow-up pieces, now a lot, of the, the sneak-up approach is rarely now useful to you in follow-up. Okay. Uh, now you've revealed who you are and why you came and what you had to say. So when you do your follow-up mailings, that's why postcards can work as follow-up, self-mailers can work as follow-ups. Now you might as well be up front. Okay. And if you're going to be screened, you're going to be screened. Okay. Um, what you do first does not necessarily affect the results to second, third, fourth, and fifth. Okay, I can take a couple more and then we're going to move on. And you, Victor, you were next. Once you've tipped your hand, once you've tipped your hand, you might as well go all the way. Now, the real answer to all this, of course, is test, as you know. But nine out of ten times, as soon as you've tipped your hand, if you've said, here is the information you requested, here is the special report you've requested, now, now the job is to get them to open the envelope, right? You've already revealed you're making a sales call. So start thinking about how much further to go. So is it better to say here's the special report you requested or here's the special report you requested colon 
uh, 27 ways to cut your overhead in half in 86 six minutes or, or less. Well, it's better to put the compelling title there. Now, once we've revealed the title, we might as well put some bullet points. And here's the seven things you're going to discover when you read the enclosed special. Once we've gone that far, we might as well put a few testimonials. Here's some people who got the report, and here's their fat picture, and here's their thin picture. See? Once you, once you start going down the path, there's no reason not to go all the way down the path. They got it. Guy's there to make a sales call. Okay? Yes? We'll get to that. I'm going to pass on that, but make sure I get back to it. Yes? His question is, uh, personal in nature. Somebody has answered an ad or requested information on an impotence cure, um, uh, hair transplant, cosmetic surgery, um, those sorts of things, real bad idea to teaser copy the envelope. Um, uh, it, it, is by the, it is, by the way, done in cold mailings in those businesses. Uh, uh, the, the biggest direct mailer of herbal equivalents to, to, to Viagra that is just mailing cold lists, their envelopes are full of teaser copy. And... and, and Huge promises. Um, <laughs> good, very good. A little slow, but um, yeah, and then it'll sound just like they got it. Yeah, um, uh, but but in but if they've requested the information, no. Like in the hair replacement business, it should be enclosed as the confidential information you request. If if anything, um, you, you you can't. Uh, you, you might be more effective if you could, but you can't. Okay? Uh, okay. Let's move on to direct mail formats. Let's see. 940, and it's supposed to be 915. We're going great. Um, we're talking enveloped packages, obviously. Um, uh, however, uh, even when you do self-mailers, a letter should be this, the, the primary component part of the mailing. Um, uh, I have a client, I haven't worked with him in a number of years, but did some consulting some years ago for him. You've probably, every one of you has seen his stuff. Um, he's in the uh, $39, uh, three-and-a-half-hour stop-smoking uh, hip, hypnosis sem seminar business. And um, um, in his case, uh, none of his competitors do, he fills half of his seminar seats with Valpac uh, rather than newspaper ads. You know Valpac, the thing you get at home with the coupons in it from the home remodeling guys and Domino's Pizza. Uh, his piece in Valpac is an 11 by 17 flat, so it folds to four eight and a half by 11 pieces. And then it's tri-folded down to fit in the Valpac envelope. In case you didn't know it, by the way, they'll do that. They charge you a little extra, but they'll do that. Um, the front of the piece is Addy, just like his newspaper ad. 
So it's headlines and pictures and the $39 and the big headline is stop smoking in three and a half hours or double your money back, et cetera, et cetera. It's an ad. But when you open it up, the next two pages are a letter. Used to be very brochure-y. We split tested, the letter wins. Almost without exception, letters outpull anything. So even if you're doing self-mailers, a significant chunk of it should be made to look as much as possible like a letter and should be written like a letter. In enveloped pieces, I can't think of a time when it, when it warrants sending an envelope piece without a sales letter. Um, this is the closest thing we get to one-on-one -on -one communication uh, and to conversational communication, and so it's got to be there. Should you have a brochure or not have a brochure? You need a brochure, you want a brochure predominantly for one of two reasons. Uh, if there are things that are pictorial, that can and should be shown, um, and can and should be shown in color, uh, that will help your sales story, uh, then you probably want a brochure. If you're looking for a way, for a credibility crutch uh, to prop up your proposition to make yourself look more real, more stable, then you want a brochure. Um, otherwise, hard to justify it, um, and uh, often the added expense does not warrant uh, response rates. A real good substitute for a brochure that is often a whole lot less expensive is a tear sheet. Uh, everybody know what tear sheets are? Anybody does not know what a tear sheet is? Raise your hands. It's all right. One or two or three or four of you. Okay, real quick. Tear sheet is uh, made to look, first of all, it's format. It's made to look like it was an article. Might have been in a newspaper, might have been in a trade journal, a magazine they read. Um, uh, the newspaper ones you've all gotten, uh, and they look like they were a page out of the newspaper. Sometimes they'll have the stock quotes or something printed on the back of them. And, uh, but it's an article that in all probability never ran. Uh, it just looks like it did. And uh, the good news, you write it journalistic style, but you get to do it the way you want it. And that newspaper page, for example, on newspaper paper will cost you a tenth of what a brochure will cost you or even less, but it will often have greater impact because it looks like a newspaper article, so it gets higher readership and it has greater credibility um, because often they don't realize what you've done. And again, you actually succeed in fooling them. Even when you don't go all the way to fool them and you reveal your hand, it has higher readership often than does a full-color, glitzy, expensive brochure. So tear sheets can be real effective second pieces in mailings. Yes, sir? then your tear sheet should either look like, what if you're marketing to a small professional market, tear sheet should either look like it came out of the professional journal that they all read, or if it's appropriate for you to be famous generally and that helps you in the niche market, then it could be from your... That's interesting. Huh? Is that what that was? Is that... Um, Hey, what do we pay for this room? Um, uh, we're not, you might, it may not happen again, but 
No, there it is again. We are now uh, hearing someone else's sound. How about finding a hotel person and having them fix this? The sooner, the better. Um, I could lip sync it, but it ain't going to make it. Um, so, so it's either from the professional journal, appears to be from a professional journal. Uh, and so let's, let's, let's say, say you're marketing to rocket scientists, okay? And there is a real publication called Rocket Scientist Monthly. Maybe you want to make it look without using their name, but everything else looks right like it came from Rocket Science Monthly. Same size page. If it's on slick paper, slick paper. Same type style, same everything. Or you create a phony publication that is Rocket Science Annual Journal or Who's Who of Rocket Science Journal. And now you just make it up from scratch, but you make it look like it was a page out of something. <laughs> We're in for a very long day, aren't we? Can you? Um, uh, and tell whoever that is they're going to like it. They're, they're really not going to like it when I come over there and interfere with what they're doing. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, no, uh-uh. First of all, most won't get it. Uh, the other thing you do is you make it look like it came out of the Wall Street Journal. Again, I wouldn't recommend putting Wall Street Journal on it, but, you know. Um, if you want to play this really straight, um, and you can use a general public, like a, you want a newspaper tear sheet, and you want to play it really straight, then you actually go pay, pay to run it in the dinkiest, cheapest newspaper you can find. And now you can actually reprint it as it ran. <clears throat> and often the small town news, you'll find a small town newspaper that won't make you put paid advertisement above it, so now you can run it just the way it ran. Um, uh, next thing we can enclose, uh, lift notes. Uh, yeah, you want a tear sheet question? Yeah, that's what I was regulatory. Yes. Oh, yeah, there's regulatory problems with all of this. Uh, and you will, you will find a legal disclaimer on page one of your manual. Okay? Um, and we don't have time to practice law. Okay? Maybe end of day Q&A or something. But, yeah, there's regulatory problems with all of this. Um, now, pretty much anything that works is you start from the idea that anything that works really well, it's illegal. <laughs> and um, then the issue is, are the, you know, the shades of gray and all of that. Uh, lift notes. Um, interesting thing to test always if you have a control, if you have a piece that works, what happens if we add a lift note to it? Uh, cheap, easy to do, often will give you a bump, one, one var variable to test. Uh, uh, the first type of lift note is, is really a true lift note. It is designed to be the first thing they read. Uh, it's typically an odd size, smaller piece of paper than the full page, but it doesn't have to be. <clears throat> and it can be a, from a testimonial. It can be from an endorser in the marketplace. It can be from a celebrity. Uh, it can be from your spouse. It can be from your dog signed with a paw print. Um, the, 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 what it can be is endless, but its job 
is predominantly to compel them to read everything that's included in the package. Uh, lift notes are best used when you're sending it with a long sales letter, 8-page, 12-page, 16-page or longer, because now you may have a challenge of getting them to read it, and the lift note can often uh, do that. Uh, I'll show you some examples again when we get into the exhibits. Um, the, um, the other variation of this is a, is a little note that is actually designed to be read last, not first. Uh, and these are often, they come from the circulation business, the subscription business. You are most familiar with them folded over with on the outside of it. Read this only if you're still un undecided. Read this only if you've decided not to respond. Uh, Publishers Clearinghouse uses one, excuse me, Reader's Digest has used one for years. It says, no, don't say no, please say maybe. Um, and, and, and then you open it up and it's a final, you know, desperate pitch. Um, you know, to get you to respond to the offer. Um, some packages will have one of each. Um, uh, some will have multiple lift notes. Um, you can also do lift notes uh, on post-it notes, uh, small and oversized post-it notes that are actually attached to the piece. Uh, you can do lift notes that are stapled to the first page of the letter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, photographs. And here, here I'm not necessarily talking about photographs in the piece. I'm talking about separate, fallout, loose photograph. Either one that looks like a postcard or one that looks like a photo. Uh, often you will see these done where uh, it's a square, it looks like a photograph. It's not, it's been printed, but it looks like a photograph. And then on the back, often in blue ink simulating handwriting, will be a little message. Um, here I am sitting at the kitchen table in my underwear, just like I told you, making $4,000 a day. You came to Jeff. And a photograph of him in polka dot underwear sitting at the kitchen table. Okay. Uh, again, what is the job of this piece? It is to get him to read the main sales letter. All of these little peripheral items, the job is to get them to read the full message to get them to sit still for the whole sales presentation. Uh, it could be a photograph of uh, you next to a car. It could be a great before and after picture, isolated by itself, et cetera, et cetera. Phony checks, um, a staple in direct response. You've all gotten window envelope mailings where the check shows. You've gotten them with the checks attached, uh, where they don't show through the window, but they're used as part of the piece. Uh, do they work? Yes. Are they worn out? No. Um, any number of successful controls continue to use them. Um, but be very clear on what you're trying to accomplish with it. Uh, is it a grabber attached to the letter to get them to read the letter? If it's a separate piece, then its job probably is to get them to read the whole letter. So, so something said on the front and or the back of the check must again serve the same kind of purpose as a lift note. It really should be viewed as another way to do a lift note that will get read. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.